Telehub is kind of like that unknown actor who has been getting roles on and off for a couple years, who has suddenly been cast as the next star of a Marvel franchise movie. I'm J.B. Wogan, and welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. I'm recording this episode in early June, so I want to start by saying Happy Pride Month. In honor of Pride, I thought I would do something I haven't done in previous episodes, which is to say my pronouns, he, him, his. Today's episode is about the ascendance of telehealth in the time of COVID-19. Telehealth, which is sometimes called telemedicine, is the use of two-way communication technology for certain healthcare services. Since March, Congress and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have loosened federal rules that dictate when healthcare providers may use telehealth. One of my guests for this episode, Lou Brown, suggested that we look at the rapid regulatory, policy, and implementation challenges taking place in telehealth, as well as what past research tells us about the use of telehealth, and what the rise of telehealth may mean for healthcare even after the pandemic. We discussed the role it may play in supporting primary care, which has taken a severe financial hit since the pandemic started, and we talk about the risk that as telehealth becomes more widespread, it could leave people behind because of physical impairments, cultural barriers, and unequal access to technology. I hope you find the conversation useful. So before we get into the more substantive questions and answers, could each of you just say your your name, where you work, uh, and what you do? May, do you want to start us off? Sure. I'm Mei Kwong. I'm the Executive Director at the Center for Connected Health Policy, which is the federally designated National Telehealth Policy Resource Center. I'm Lou Brown. I'm a Senior Clinical Program Lead at Mathematica, a nurse by training, um, and focus on health IT policy, and in particular, developing clinical quality measures at Mathematica. And I'm Diane Rittenhouse. I'm a Senior Fellow at Mathematica in the Health Division, and I'm a professor at UCSF in Family Medicine and Health Policy, and uh, my interests are at the intersection of health policy and family medicine and research. Okay. And did you say you're in, uh, you're also an MD? You you were a family medicine doc or are? are... Oh, yeah. So I'm a family medicine doctor by training and also a healthcare researcher. Okay. Yeah. I thought, I think that's worth mentioning up top, just that you come with both of those perspectives to this conversation. So it's a pretty simple question, but probably a big answer. How has the world changed in terms of telehealth in the last 90 days or so? So I, I have likened this, used this analogy. So for telehealth, um, they are kind of like Telehub is kind of like that unknown actor who has been getting roles on and off for a couple years, who has suddenly been cast as the next star of a Marvel franchise movie. So it it has definitely, COVID-19 has raised the profile of telehealth so much. It has increased utilization for, for good reason, because it has it is a tool, a way of providing services that fits in well when you have an infectious pandemic <laughs> raging on there and people are sheltering in place, but you still need to like care for them in some way. So it, it has been an incredible boom for it, which is kind of sad to say during like the, these very like, you know, worrisome times and troubling times. 
But that is the the reality of the situation is that it's just been so much in people's minds and raised so much awareness that there this is something that exists out there and can be a useful way of providing healthcare services. So uh, in summary, telehealth is the black widow of, of healthcare right now. Or you could think maybe Chris Evans. So, <laughs> you know, like, you know, kind of knew him, didn't really know him, really knew him after he became Captain America. <laughs> All right. Right. I'm loving I'm loving the Marvel references. Yeah, I'll add that I've come across articles that have cited, you know, in a quantitative fashion, some facilities, the dramatic increase or impact of telehealth came across an article um, from I think it was some researchers at Duke that talked about the their telehealth transformation and that they cited that even systems with relatively high telehealth adoption used to perform fewer than 100 video visits per day. And some were seeing up to 600 patients per day via video due to this change to, to telehealth. Yeah, I know as a patient, I've certainly experienced a surge in telehealth appointments in a way I had never experienced before, um, just for primary care appointments for myself and also for uh, my son. I think it's been a bit of a surprise to both providers and patients um, in many cases. I think that this is a tool that's been out there and it's been an option, but there was a lot of resistance to widespread adoption, partly because people were just unfamiliar and partly because there was no way to get paid for it on the clinician's part. And now I think because of being thrust into this, as May and Lou have explained, I think there's a been a overall pretty positive experience with it. And patients are pleased to find that they can actually have a reasonable conversation and get questions answered without going into the office. And clinicians are surprised and pleased with the level of relationship that is able to be continued or formed over the the video chat or the telephone and the amount of work that can be done and diagnoses that can happen and treatments that can happen without necessarily a physical exam. Yep, that consumer awareness was definitely one of the missing elements pre-COVID-19, that widespread knowledge that this thing existed out there, that you could receive some health services over technology. I've been doing telehealth policy for 10 years, and even some of my family and friends were confused as to what I did for a living before COVID hit, and they have a greater understanding now when I talk about telehealth. But that that sort of common widespread knowledge among the the non-healthcare world folks was just not really there. I had a patient say to me at the beginning of a visit, it was an urgent care visit, and I I was not familiar with the patient. And they said, well, I was told that this was my only option, so I guess it's better than nothing. (laughs) And we laughed together, and then we talked, and I listened, and we came to a conclusion, and and had a very positive outcome at the end. And um, the patient said to me, this has been really great. And I would definitely do this again. And I, I wish that, you know, I'm, I'm glad this is an opportunity to not go in and be exposed and to be able to talk over the phone. So I think it's, it's like we're all kind of one visit away from learning about the, the potential benefits. And then the other thing that's changed in the world, I think Lou can really talk to, is how rapidly, because of all of these delivery service cha- or delivery system changes, how quickly policy has changed. Yeah, certainly. I came across a report that ASPE produced, I think back in 2016. It was a report to Congress on e-health and telemedicine. And 
That report essentially summarized telehealth activity across the federal government at that time. And one of the things that stood out to me was that telehealth activity seemed to, you know, reside across some, I don't know, five different agencies within the Department of Health and Human Services, but primarily led by HRSA. But a lot of the changes in policy that we saw come out in March seemed to be led by CMS. So it had me wondering, well, you know, who in the government's really in charge of uh, telehealth policy? But, uh, but in terms of the provisions, yeah, we've seen wholesale changes in policy going from, you know, telehealth can only be provided to patients residing in a certain facility that exists in a rural area to, you know, any patient anywhere, whether you have an established, you know, relationship or not, the type of allowable technology has changed. So there, there have been tremendous rapid changes uh, on the on the policy front. And then even on the, the reimbursement, as uh, Diane alluded to, being a constriction in the past, there being regulations that allowed the reimbursement to be for telehealth to be equal to that of in-person visits. So I think the jury's out on whether or not that'll stay the same, but certainly those sorts of policy changes in short order has contributed to the, the rapid uptake of telehealth. And just, I assume that listeners of this podcast, especially this episode, are probably already aware of what ASPE is, but just in case that is a part of the Department of Health and Human Services that oversees research and evaluation for the federal government for for health, right? That's sort of a good layman's explanation of what ASPE is. I'm trying to remember what the acronym stands for. It's ASPE. I know E is for evaluation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you got the summary right, and I can help you with the explanation, which is uh, uh, the acronym Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation. Perfect. Thank you. So I know in the intro, I meant we mentioned uh, our titles and where we work, but I want, was hoping you could explain a little bit more about how your work intersects with this specific topic of telehealth and COVID-19. And Lou, I was hoping we could start with you because I love that you pitched this idea to me for the podcast, and I was wondering what it was that interested you and why you thought it might make for a timely podcast right now. Sure. So my interest in following the recent changes to telehealth stems from my work as a nurse informaticist implementing electronic health records for a long time, combined with my more recent work investigating the ways health IT policies impact the experience of clinicians and patients. The pandemic really exposed blind spots in our country's capacity to get clinical information from point A to B from all of these records that have been installed, especially when both providers and patients have to be physically distant from each other. So I started following the rapid changes in telehealth policy and started to learn a lot myself about the range of technology that can be involved in a telehealth visit. You know, most of my focus had been on the core electronic health record uh, system itself. So uh, it was interesting to think about the range of technology from basic video calls using mobile phones to, you know, the other end of the spectrum, virtual waiting rooms that queue patients and integrate with EHR data. Related to that, I've also been following recent changes in regulations from CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. Recent regulation has been finalizing new ways to support information exchange. And so I think those regulations requiring 
breaking down silos so that information can flow from provider to provider really goes hand in hand with telehealth because telehealth is about accessing information remotely. So uh, I'm really interested to see how the adoption of telehealth sort of will integrate with broader information exchange as well. Do you think at all back to your time as a nurse and what it would be like to be practicing right now? And do you maybe do you talk to any of your former colleagues about what their experience is like at this moment? Sure. So I think that it would certainly be a help. I could imagine that. Let me redirect just for a second. What I think about is, um, you know, the former colleagues of mine who were, you know, still on the front lines and especially in hospitals in New York where I last, you know, practice in a, in a clinical setting. And what I, one of the things that I think about or thought about the most was, you know, those patients who, because of the situation we're in right now, cannot have a family member at their bedside. You know, I think of times where I've had to travel up to New York in the past um, whenever, you know, a parent, for example, had to have an inpatient stay and the role that I would play in trying to coordinate care and information. And so in a situation like this, where it's just the patient and that nurse or doctor standing next to them needing to communicate with their primary care provider, you know, that's telehealth and, and that's a very necessary use of it. And then the need for providers, you know, clinicians, nurses, and doctors to communicate with each other in an effective way has never been more critical. And I think telehealth supports that. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, that's a really good example. May, I, I think probably you have the most direct connection between your day-to-day job and, and telehealth. But, but yeah, tell, tell me more about sort of how, how the, the pandemic has affected your work. So the the Center for Connected Health Policy, as I mentioned in my introduction, is the federally designated National Telehealth Policy Resource Center. What that essentially means is uh, we actually get funding from the federal government, from HRSA, which um, Lou mentioned earlier, to basically provide technical assistance to primarily the other telehealth resource centers who are funded underneath the same grant program whenever they run across a telehealth policy question that they can't answer. That was the primary focus of the grant, but when CCHP got it back in 2012, we kind of altered the, the, the work plan a little bit, or we expanded it from what I think probably HRSA wasn't anticipating, in that we do provide actually technical assistance to a wider audience than just the telehealth resource center. So we have helped everybody from the White House and congressional members to state policymakers to health plans, providers, hospitals, national organizations. And especially now with COVID-19, we've been getting quite a few calls from consumers who are asking about telehealth and trying to learn about it. One of the things that we do, we track not only the federal legislations and policies related to telehealth, but we do the tracking for all 50 states as well in the District of Columbia. Their Medicaid policies, their laws, and their regulations, and we keep a compendium of that that we update on a regular basis. So when when COVID-19 hit, we suddenly ratcheted up, like just the, the attention that we got, the calls that we got, it just increased by, I actually just saw the data for the month of March because we were looking at some of the numbers, like the volume of requests coming into us increased by over 800% in comparison to March of 2019. 
Lou mentioned this. There were like numerous numerous guidances and policy updates that were being issued almost on a daily basis or were, you know, like weekly basis. We were constantly trying to keep the public informed about that through various means, such as um, our website, which is heavily trafficked, just like trying to just keep abreast of that. And it was changing so rapidly that it was really confusing, like I think a lot of providers in the just trying to keep pace with all these rapid developments. So we were, we were trying to act as sort of like that central location where people could go to to understand what were the changes going on, how did it impact them, what what they could do like within the situation, within, underneath this policy with telehealth as it related to COVID. It's, it's stabilized a bit now because there hasn't actually been any new sort of new changes that have been issued in the last couple of weeks. So we've been able to, to like, you know, go a little bit more in depth and do sort of a little bit more forecasting on what we think may possibly stick around. But um, it's definitely... Definitely, we got thrown into the eye of the storm here because there were just so many policy changes being published and enacted both on the federal and the state level. And there was just such a need by providers and consumers and other policymakers even into understanding what was going on. I have a follow-up question for you, if you don't mind me. For the types of questions that came in, I'm wondering whether or not they were concentrated in any particular policy area? Was it a lot of questions about allowable technology or was it seeking clarification on reimbursement policies or or like was there any particular focus to the influx of questions? It was mainly around reimbursement policy because for one thing, what we were seeing was an uptick of people who are just starting telehealth. So it was all those providers, all those programs who did not have a telehealth program in place were saying, how do I get started? What's my starting point? How do I do this? And and billing. So the policy that comes out, and, and I try to stress this to people, is that when the policy comes out, that's just one part of it. It's got to be implemented then. And that's a whole other area. So if it's statute, you then have regulations and then you have like, you know, the agency that's carrying out, they may have their own policies and it can get very, very tricky to like navigate that. And when you're talking to the provider, they have that understanding of like, oh, I'm a provider now that I can get reimbursed if I uh, did a service via telehealth, but how do I bill for it? What what code do I need to use? What code do I use? Where do I, what do I put on this line of the form, et cetera, et cetera. It was like those sort of in-depth questions that we were also getting because they understood like the general policy of like, yes, I can do it now, but how do I do it? It also makes me wonder about the fact that part of the challenge, I think, over time uh, with telehealth is that each state was allowed to a lot of latitude to, you know, implement telehealth uh, the way they wanted to. So in the past month or so, do you have any sense of whether or not there's been more uniformity now that the at the federal level there was, you know, more more relaxing of guidelines? So sort of the the two common things that you saw both on the federal and the state level where it was like a common type of policy, at least on a temporary basis that we saw, was allowing the home to be where the patient could be located when they receive the services and allowing audio only phone. And the latter is really interesting because pre-COVID-19, actually quite a few states and quite a few Medicaid programs explicitly excluded 
audio-only phone underneath their definition of telehealth or telemedicine, whichever term they were using. So that was why with a lot of executive orders, with a lot of Medicaid guidance, you saw them say telehealth and phone or audio-only phone, because Underneath their what they had on the books as their definition, if they just said telehealth, it wouldn't have included audio only. So that has been an incredibly interesting development. It was a necessary development because, yeah, you do have like large parts of the population who either don't have that connectivity to use telehealth or and or maybe not the equipment at home to use it like a laptop or a smartphone. Diane, I saw you nodding your head about people not having the ability to do or not knowing how to do video conferences. So maybe that's something you can speak to more. Um, I think the, uh, the original question I had posed to Lou and May, we haven't gotten to you, Diane, is uh, how your work and how your background directly connects to this topic of telehealth and COVID-19. So I'm a family physician and am a, a health policy researcher and am interested in how primary care is organized and paid for and delivered and how the workforce in primary care is doing generally. And so COVID-19 has been fascinating to to watch the effects of the pandemic on the organization and delivery of primary care. And one of the biggest changes has been this rapid adoption of telehealth. I myself then as a physician went, I had not been seeing patients for a period and I went back in um, under sort of an urgent call to see patients and did so through telehealth with one of these companies that does only telehealth. And that was also an interesting experience for me. And then I've been, you know, in my research, really thinking about what's going on with primary care clinicians, what's going on with the patient population as these different waves of the pandemic hit. And as we're seeing clinicians become more and more stressed and more and more financially impacted by the the epidemic, as we're seeing patients with more mental health issues and behavioral health issues. And then as these policies change and the adaptations happen, I'm an observer of the system. So one thing I would say is that the primary care clinicians have been out there on the front lines seeing patients regardless if they're getting paid or not. It's sort of in their DNA to do so. And so there was this rapid shift where patients were afraid to come in, where providers didn't have the the appropriate PPE and protective equipment to see patients. And so this rapid shift to saying, well, we'll, we'll, I'll handle this on the phone or we'll try to do some sort of video chat. And the equipment really wasn't necessarily there. The connectivity wasn't great. Um, the payment certainly wasn't there, but um, it happened almost overnight where where primary care providers were just sort of stepping up and saying to their their established patients, you know, trust me, this is the way we're going to have to do this to keep everybody safe. In the meantime, policies have ch- have ch- begun to change and people have begun to try to develop better equipment and, and systems for payment. Uh, I do, I am concerned about sort of the exhaustion in the, and the burnout and the change fatigue, we call it, that's going on in primary care, where we've been asking primary care practices to make so many changes over so little time. And now this is yet another big change that that by necessity has to happen. I think that that uh, not only are we seeing high levels of of stress and anxiety among the patient populations, but also we're seeing illness and and mental health issues and concerns and stress, including financial stress 
among the provider population. So this is a tough time. And thank goodness there are people like May and her resource center out there to help with some of the changes that need to happen. So, you know, uh, three of us are at Mathematica. It's an evidence-based organization. I uh, So I was just wondering to what extent do we have evidence on telehealth? And I think that's a sort of a broad question because I, I'd be curious to know all kinds of things about telehealth. Like, does it, do patients like it better? Does it improve outcomes? W- what do we know about doing it well or when it's done poorly and what, what the effects are of that? So I don't know who wants to take that up, but what do we know about telehealth and how it works? I guess that's mostly prior to the current moment. So there actually was quite a few studies around telehealth, but when you say telehealth, it's not as if you could do a research project just on telehealth alone. Usually the way studies were conducted with it and like how the efficacy of it and like providing services, they usually picked a particular, you know, type of condition. So, you know, if it was like treatment for um, anorexia patients uh, using telehealth to provide telebehavioral or mental health services, or maybe if it was, you know, treatment of skin cancer in dermatology. So it, it wasn't sort of just telehealth in general, you could do a study, but usually more focused studies on a particular condition, which is is legitimate because even as a telehealth proponent, telehealth is not appropriate for every single situation and it should not be used, you know, as a one-to-one replacement for everything. You are still going to need those in-person services. But there was, you know, quite a bit of evidence um, that it could be very effective. It may sometimes in some cases be better in some ways, or it can fill gaps that were not there, such as, you know, a, a couple of years ago, especially when the ACA was still kind of fresh and new and there were certain things associated with the ACA, such as penalties if you had hospital readmissions within a certain period. There were a lot of telehealth studies for remote patient monitoring and like monitoring those newly discharged patients and remotely monitoring them and heading off perhaps like a situation where they would need to be readmitted. Um, Get, you know, closely monitoring them that way. And that was shown to be, you know, very effective. It was like reducing hospitalizations and it was improving their health, obviously, because they weren't deteriorating to the fact where they needed to go to the ER again. Uh, so you fast forward, though, to, to COVID, and it has suddenly exploded. And I do think we are in some areas where we're not quite sure of, like, you know, of where telehealth is going with this. Um, one thing, for example, and I said earlier, telephone before COVID-19 was not considered a part of telehealth and definition-wise in a lot of places. So I think that's gotten kind of like a little mixed up now, and it's starting to be maybe placed underneath that umbrella of telehealth. But there is the question of like, you know, how far can you use audio only to provide healthcare services? And like, what's what? how effective is that? What are some of the protocols that need to be in place for that as well? That's one of like the big questions that we had been getting too during this time when you have all these new providers pivoting and starting to use telehealth, they do have questions of, well, how do I do an annual wellness check for a child? You know, how do you do certain things? Like I can't do things, certain things over telehealth. And that is true. Again, there are certain things you are going to need to do in person. And there were, you know, quite a few gaps in there in that when they did ask like a telehealth resource center, what is there like, does anybody have guidelines of like, how do, how am I supposed to use telehealth for an annual wellness check? 
that did not exist. It, it had to be developed by, you know, the, I think it was like American Academy of Pediatricians, like trying to go through like, you know, what, what they thought would probably be the best way of doing things. And that was because, again, we go back to pre-COVID, telehealth was not as widespread, it was not ubiquitous, it was not as, you know, popular and utilized as law. So you didn't have those tools in existence when the pandemic hit. And then everybody starts to scramble and try to put something together to address those questions that are coming now fast and furious from people who had not used telehealth a lot and were saying, what do I do in this situation? And part of what we try to do with telehealth resource centers were to lean on more mature programs, you know, providers who had done this saying, hey, can you share some of your protocols that you had in place? We're getting these questions and like do that. So that was helpful in that those were, you know, tried and true because this this hospital had done it for a couple of years this is how they worked around it but even they were facing like you know new challenges i think lou mentioned talking up to you know um, a study that duke was doing where they were saying like even like mature programs who were seeing who had a telehealth program they were just seeing like 100 cases and then suddenly it skyrocketed 600 cases for a week or whatever the period was even they were having to like make adjustments too in this time of covid you know add not about specific research, but the fact that when we're talking about research on telehealth, because it's related to, te- to technology, you know, even older studies that were related to, you know, older technology, it almost makes it difficult to rest on that body of research because, you know, today's technology is, is so different. Um, one study that I came across that we conducted here at Mathematica back in, I think, 2008, it was related to diabetes care, and they had these contraptions that looked like, you know, like dedicated phones or something like that. And, and you would never conduct a telehealth study based on some, you know, standalone fixed device dedicated to telehealth today. Yeah, that's a good point about how technology has changed. I, uh, I, was, I was thinking about my own grandparents um, ahead of this call, and they uh, they both have iPads and smartphones now. And since everyone started sheltering in place, their main desktop computer broke and they can't figure out how to fix it and Apple can't help them and they haven't been able to set up an appointment uh, with Best Buy. But they've been able to get by for the most part just off of these mobile devices that they have. And that includes even during a time where their electricity went out on top of everything else. But because they had their their all these different smart devices, they've been able to FaceTime with family and text people and send emails and all that stuff. And I would imagine that that would extend to their ability to keep up with um, with their uh, medical providers as well. So do you have any questions bubbling up about this change, this transformational period in telehealth and in, in maybe in primary care in particular right now? What, what are you watching for? What do you What do you hope to learn about this period? You know, I feel like telehealth is an outstanding new access point. I'll call it new because it's it's been so uh, exponentially um, it's been ent- exponentially implemented over recent months. But I think fundamentally, what's important about primary care the the core pillars of primary care about continuity and comprehensiveness, et cetera are really what's important. And I think figuring out how this new access point can kind of blend 
with what we know to be important about relationship-based primary care is what's going to be key going forward and finding a way to, to support that with payment and with technical assistance that's so necessary. And then the other piece, I want to give a shout out to my colleagues at UCSF who've spent their careers thinking about addressing equity in telemedicine. Um, Sarah Nuri and Elaine Kuhn and Courtney Lyles and Lee Carling are just, we do have data on the equity issue. And I do, we do know that digital barriers are found more frequently in rural populations and among older adults and racial and ethnic minority populations, people with limited health literacy or limited English proficiency. And I, I know just from practice that, you know, it's not so difficult to have a call, even with someone you don't know well, who speaks your same language, who has the technology, who has the connectivity, and who has a simple problem to, to present with. But when you start talking about patients with complex comorbid conditions, with, with chronic illness that's been going on over time and has had multiple people involved in terms of a healthcare team, when you talk about people who have maybe family issues that are, or dynamics that are keeping them unsafe in their home or that can't find a private place to talk, people with developmental disabilities, people with dementia. I mean, there's a lot of situations where an either an in-person visit is going to be required or where adoption to telehealth is going to have to be explicitly thought through carefully for these for for certain populations. So I just want to bring that up. I think that we know there are already disparities in healthcare and inequities in healthcare delivery, and we need to be careful that telemedicine doesn't just kind of take off um, and leave these populations behind. Diana, I think that's so well said. Just as you were talking, I, I thought about, you know, implicit biases and how the availability of doing telehealth visits can, I don't know, I don't know if perverse incentives are the is the right term but you know there's so much to a clinical encounter that's relationship based as you were saying and does a telehealth visit between a provider and a patient of a different background result in a far more brief curt you know more surface level interaction that doesn't adequately assess pain does not adequately assess the problem behind the problem that they're asking about versus how that encounter might look completely different with the patient who resembles their background more closely where the information gathering and the dialogue might be more rich and the time taken might be deeper and and longer as well. And I definitely think before COVID that was an area of study that was lacking is understanding how that how technology and maybe cultural differences intersect. There was not actually a lot of study about that with, you know, different reactions for uh, cultures, people from different backgrounds may have to the use of technology. And I would also throw in one other segment of the population in there. A lot of lacking of um, information and studies regarding telehealth and the disabled community. 
people with special needs on like how has the technology been sort of like adjusted to like you know their particular condition and can, would they be able to use it? That has been one thing with COVID. It's like these various groups that you didn't really hear a lot from maybe before COVID nineteen and wanting to use telehealth or exploring to use telehealth were you know really forced because of self isolation or staying at home to like I still need to receive services. I need to turn to telehealth. But maybe that technology has not been adjusted to my particular situation or my particular case for me to be able to use it. I think of, for example, even my mother who was 86 and and was a patient of a large integrated healthcare system that adopted telehealth early on. It was it kept her out of the ER on multiple occasions when she was able to talk late at night with a physician by phone. By making an appointment and and discussing her situation, but she was hard of hearing. So just that, even though we had, she had me as a physician, as a daughter who was present, and she had the technology, as we say, she she couldn't hear well enough to to know exactly what was being said and needed a lot of help with that. So there's a lot of populations that are going to need to be planned into this. So we've we've talked a little bit about. Recent changes, some of the past evidence about、uh, telehealth, but what about the future? What do you expect? What does the future look like for telehealth, and how telehealth fits within the broader picture of healthcare in the United States? So, as we talked about, a lot of these changes that happened during COVID, they're temporary. They they're just most of them, you know, have an expiration date of like whenever the public health emergency is declared over either on the federal or the state level. But I do know now, both on the federal and the state level, policymakers are talking about what do we keep around, and and it's which is actually encouraging because we're not hearing like, well, let's just roll it back to pre COVID nineteen. But understanding that you know you had a lot of providers ramp up to incorporate telehealth, so it will be a difficult thing if, like, suddenly it's just pulled away from them. But also a difficult thing if it's just suddenly pulled away from from patients as well,、um, because you're going to get people who liked it and people who didn't. But I think there is probably going to be a significant portion who liked it. Who probably not only want to, but may need to continue receiving services via telehealth because they may be a vulnerable population, and even if the public health emergency is declared over, they may still want to be or need to be limiting their contact with like various、uh, parts of the outside world. So, I think probably the things that sort of have the best chance of like sticking around is probably like wider coverage of the services that they'll reimburse if it's provided via telehealth. I think the location changes, such as allowing the mo- most of the services or those services to take place in the home where the patient's located, and also possibly allowing more providers to to provide the service via telehealth. Allied health professionals like OTs and PTs. We're not really on a lot of lists of reimbursable providers pre-COVID nineteen. Suddenly, they were put on the list with these waivers. I think some of that will stick around. The interesting question is, and it relates back to what we were just talking about, like with the digital divide and cultural divides and so forth. Is phone going to stick around? Again, that was not underneath the definition of telehealth for a lot of places. But are they going to keep audio only? You may have to because you're probably not going to solve that digital divide or that broadband connectivity difficulty within like a couple of months. So what do you do in the meantime? You may have to rely on the phone, and I've already started to see 
at least in one state where they've introduced legislation for their Medicaid program, where they, they've changed the definition and said we're keeping audio only as underneath the definition of telehealth. So that's already starting to begin with some of the policy changes make, being made permanent. Yeah, so the reimbursement, I think, is part of this is really interesting. And I, I am kind of curious, you know, what this might mean for reimbursement, particularly in primary care. And I guess another another thing that's floating in my head is we're at the we're this year is the ten year anniversary of the ACA. The ACA did seem to, to really prioritize primary care as a first stop for the healthcare system. So, what might this moment with telehealth mean for the future of primary care? I, I heard a, a CMS official say recently on a on a panel that the genie is out of the bottle, and I think that there is some realization that that we're probably not going back to to what was normal everyday care prior to COVID nineteen. Personally, I think that there's a fair amount of primary care that has been tradition in a way, this sort of laying on of hands and this sort of reaching patients through a physical connection and putting the stethoscope on someone's chest as part of a, almost either to to be paid because that was required to be paid or because the patient expects that the doctor is believes in that, but but not because necessarily in that moment for that particular complaint, that patient has to have their heart listened to. So I think there's some tradition that people need to get over a little bit. I think doctors are quickly getting over it and patients are too in in having examples of this. In other words, as patients and physicians have successful telehealth visits, I think they're realizing that that some of what they believed had to happen, I need to have a doctor look in my ear, I need to have a doctor listen to my heart every time we're moving past that. In terms of primary care and what's going to happen going forward, primary care doctors are are shuttering now. They're closing their doors and they're going bankrupt. They're furloughing employees. And it's happening because traditionally primary care doctors are paid per service. So in this fee-for-service model, if they don't see a patient or do something to a patient, they don't get paid. And now it's helping that they can get paid from telehealth and telemedicine. But I think that there's also a real learning that if they were paid differently, not just paid for a for a five minute telehealth visit, but actually paid in advance to take care of a population that that providers who have that kind of advanced payment or prospective payment are actually faring much better during the during COVID-19 because they're able to care for patients however they want to care for patients. Um, because they're paid to take care of a population's needs. It doesn't matter if they do it by phone or if they do it in person or if they do it by telehealth or if they go visit the patient in their home or how many times they they touch the patient. They're just caring for the patient's needs. And I think that there's really a call now on the part of primary care physicians to move towards that kind of prospective payment. And that's another area where I think there's been some resistance and suddenly that we're seeing a shift in the tide and we're seeing people say, you know, pay me up front. I'll take care of the population in the way that they can best be cared for and move away from this fee-for-service kind of payment. So I I think there's a, a big shift about to happen in primary care and I'm hoping that we see the leadership that we need to see to make that happen. Put technology aside, it'll be interesting in terms of the leadership that we see, what emphasis and and further support we see placed on primary care. Primary care leads the way in 
preventive services, handling patients with chronic care, all of the vulnerabilities that have really been amplified as we see who has been hit hard by the pandemic. So what support we see for primary care coming out of this, you know, again, technology aside, will be interesting to see. All right. So last question, sort of standard question with my podcast is, what haven't we discussed that we should have? What should I have asked about that I haven't yet? I just want to say I have a close colleague and friend who's a pediatrician who works in a federally qualified health center and sees a population that is primarily Spanish speaking and she speaks Spanish fluently and and has a continuity practice there with her pediatric um, population. And it's been challenging. It's been very challenging to transition in part because Spanish is not her native language, and sometimes patients that are she's seeing Spanish is not their native language, and so the communicate the what is normally not a hurdle in in the exam room over the telephone becomes more difficult. And then sometimes there's complex family dynamics, sometimes there's issues about the physical exam, um, sometimes there's connectivity issues, so. That's a, an example of a situation where, you know, if you can't speak directly to the patient, you can't observe very well, especially if you're limited by the telephone, you can't observe a baby or a toddler in the exam room and, and pick up on all those um, clues that you would normally pick up on. That's an example of a, of a um, situation where sometimes telehealth can be more limited. I, I would also stress that I've seen some comments from physicians, but also from just consumers, patients as well, in, in that n- nobody, I don't think anybody definitely on this, this podcast is saying that it's going to replace in-person completely. It, it's, it's not that. And the way CCHP has always approached this is said, like, we want to make it a tool that's available for the clinician to use when they think it is appropriate to use. It is not going to replace in-person services. It cannot be used for every service that you do in person. You're still going to need that there. Um, And I think that's gotten kind of lost sometimes for some people when they hear about telehealth and how it's taking over and how it's, you know, the new Marvel star. Um, But it's, it's not, it's not replacing in person. It's not replacing your, your, your doctor's visit. It is just like another tool, another access point, as Diane said, that's available for folks to receive care if it is appropriate to receive it that way. And if the patient is willing to receive it that way, because, um, you know, maybe they feel like they don't have the option now because they're either scared about going into the doctor's office or there's like, you know, the doctor's office has shut down and they're all going virtual. Um, but there is still there is still a choice. There will still be a choice in that, you know, you don't have to use telehealth if you don't want to. Now, part of it is you may have to wait a little bit longer to like get that in-person visit and it may be faster to use telehealth. Um, but there's also going to be situations where you're going to have your provider say, can't do that over telehealth you need to come in you know right now don't know of anybody who's drawing blood over telehealth so that yes there will still be the need to like still go in still have that in-person um, interaction so I, I do want to make clear because I think it's gotten a little bit lost sometimes with like all this rush to telehealth that some people may be thinking it's going to replace in-person completely and it's not it's just another tool there in the toolkit for the provider to use thanks again to my guests Mae Kwong, Lou Brown, and Diane Rittenhouse. And thank you for listening to another episode of On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. 
Subscribe for future episodes wherever you find podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider giving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also keep up with the show, as well as other interesting work from Mathematica, by following me and Mathematica on Twitter. I'm at JB Wogan. Mathematica is at Mathematica Now.